Section 22 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, General Estimate, Religious Philosophy, Part 1. It now only remains briefly to sum up the results of our historical and expository survey. These results have been plainly indicated already, but it may be well to bring them together and so set in order the services which the rational movement of the seventeenth century has rendered to the cause of Christian thought and civilization. Finally, we shall touch on the defects of the movement and the causes of its partial failure. 1. The primary merit of our rational theologians was their inculcation of the doctrine of toleration. This doctrine is now so universally admitted in theory that it is not easy to estimate the cost at which it was first taught and the superior enlightenment out of which it arose in the seventeenth century. Yet no idea was at first more novel and repulsive. It was unintelligible to the ordinary political and theological mind. Footnote. Even after all the lessons of the Civil War and the Commonwealth, a theologian so eminent as Dr. Owen failed to appreciate in its true meaning the principle of toleration. See Houghton's Church of the Restoration, 1, 30 and 31. End of footnote. It was intolerable to the powerful factions which strove for the mastery in England. Cromwell, when he attained to power, so far realized and carried out the idea, but this was in virtue of his own superiority and his sympathy with the rational thought which otherwise he so little understood. But neither high churchmen nor Puritans understood it, or, so far as they understood it, they hated it. Their essential conception, both of a national and ecclesiastical polity, implied dogmatic as well as external uniformity. In opposition to this, our rational theologians announced as a principle that dogmatic uniformity is unattainable, and that the prosperity both of the church and the country are to be sought in toleration and latitude of religious opinion. They proclaimed, in other words, that religious questions can only be settled by being left to free discussion. Men, inasmuch as their minds and circumstances are different, necessarily differ about them. They are matters of conscience and not of control. The very effort to control religious opinion not only defeats the end in view and issues in fiercer discordance than ever, but it kills religious vitality and assails the personal foundations of all belief. The spiritual reason, on the one hand, and scripture on the other, are the sole authorities in religion. Man can have no higher arbiter in the end of what is divine or credible in religion than his own judgment enlightened by God's word. These statements are now of the nature of religious commonplace, worn and perhaps vulgarized by indiscriminate repetition. The doctrine of toleration, if not of the supremacy of reason in religion, is now a popular instead of a proscribed doctrine, and even the most irrational religious organizations have learned to use the word and profess to be shocked at any thought of enforcing their religious opinions upon others. But it is easy to be tolerant after the triumph of toleration. It is good to make a virtue of necessity, and to proclaim a principle the practice of which is more or less compulsory, according to modern state usages on all religious bodies. This is something entirely different from the recognition of the principle in its true sense, in the sense in which our divines recognized and taught it. Their idea of toleration was not mere non-interference with another's religious opinions, still less indifference as to the quality of such opinions, as if beyond rational cognizance. It was an intelligent apprehension of the right of each and all to search and find religious truth for themselves. It sprang out of deep reverence for conscience and trust in the voice of reason as the supreme side of human nature. 
It was, according to them, the special function of the church to educate and not to bind and control religious thought. The truly Catholic Church is not the church resting in this creed or that, proclaiming this type of doctrine or that, but the universal company of the faithful, who own Christ as their Lord and believe in his name with all their diversities of opinion and of gift. The idea of the church, as based upon opinion, is a medieval and not a primitive idea. The church subsists in communion of spirit, not in coincidence of doctrine. It has a common faith, it may have a common worship, but it is not bound to any definite type of theology, any argumentative or theoretic creed. The statement of facts in the Apostles' Creed is ample doctrinal basis, beyond which it is wrong to go. Such was the conclusion to which the idea of toleration worked itself in the minds of our rational theologians. It seems the only logical conclusion. If the essence of the Church rests in doctrine rather than in life, in creeds rather than in sympathy, then it follows directly that toleration of religious differences is inconsistent with its true order and function. If salvation depends upon true opinion, then variety of opinion must be inconsistent with it, and of course expelled from the Church, and prevented with all practicable force. It is impossible to get out of this circle. Persecution is the legitimate corollary of the dogmatic idea of the Church. Toleration is only rationally held when differences of dogma are not only acknowledged, but, so to speak, cultivated as the very condition and nurture of spiritual activity. Uniformity of doctrine is not only impracticable, it is not a good thing in itself. It can only exist where thought and science are dead, where the cold shadow of the past lies upon the quick life of the present and imprisons it to the injury of Christian progress and civilization. Starting with the sacredness of religious conviction in the individual and its divinely incompressible character, our rational divines did not yet any of them sink into individualism or dream of a dissidence of dissent. They felt the awful reality of the religious problem and that religion was something beyond all state compulsion, but they did not therefore abandon the idea of a national church. They sought to modify the idea, not to subvert it. What is known as the voluntary principle was then unknown, and would not have appeared to them a principle at all. No doubt modern voluntarism has sprung in some degree from their root thought, the sacredness of religious conviction, and the absolute authority of conscience therein. But let men differ as they may in religious opinion, this was no reason, according to our divines, why there should not be common worship and a common national church. Nay, community of religious life is all the more necessary because unity of religious opinion is impossible. They solved the religious problem, therefore, not by giving it up and saying, since men cannot agree about religion, let them separate and each party keep its own principles and set up its own worship, but by pushing the problem to its legitimate conclusion and drawing out the essential distinction between dogma and religion. This great distinction is one of their chief contributions to modern thought. Dogmatic opinion and religious faith belong with them to different spheres. The one is the product of the intellect, always restlessly seeking for exhaustive solutions of the divine as of everything else. The other is the fruit of the spirit, the sympathetic life in man which clings to a higher life even when light is wanting and the sphere of divine knowledge may seem conflicting and obscure. The latter is the only true basis of the church, whose function is first to quicken and then strengthen and educate the religious side of humanity, without primary respect to scientific accuracy of opinion. To make opinion or dogma the basis of the church is to invert the divine order, according to which doctrine is placed after life, 
and true thought as to the divine can only spring from its practice and realization. This is an idea repeatedly enforced by our theologians. They recognize religion and the church as springing from faith in a personal redeemer, and finding in this faith their ample warrant. There is no other or further essential of Christian communion. Theological opinion or dogma is a growth from this. To attain to clearer and higher views of the divine being and character, and the mode of the divine action in human salvation, is the work of the Christian intellect within the church, nurtured by an ever nearer communion with its heavenly source. But to bar the threshold by a summary of Christian theology, which all must receive as the condition of entrance to it, nay, under the peril of damnation which it pronounces upon misbelievers, is not only to narrow and sectarianize the Catholic communion, but to subvert its essential idea. The church is the home of the faithful everywhere, of all who have any aspirations after God and truth. Precise opinions in theology are the labor of the schools, of the thought bred within the church, awakened and nurtured by its special life. The concept of dissent, therefore, had no place in the minds of our theologians. The church was not to them an organization for the propagation of this or that set of opinions. It was a culture or worship resting on the recognition of a few divine facts, a spiritual society within whose sheltering bosom all opinions consistent with these facts should find free room and scope. It did not begin in dogma, it does not rightly rest on it, yet one of its functions is to elaborate dogma and cultivate a higher Christian thought as well as a more diffused and earnest Christian spirit. Thought is the function of the few, it can only live and flourish along with perfect freedom. Dogma is the varying expression of the divine activity of the Church in ever-renewed adaptation to its own necessities and the progress of knowledge. Instead of being the beginning, therefore, it is the summit and crown of the Church's being. Instead of resting upon a creed, in any purely dogmatic or scientific sense, in other words, upon a special theology, which was the Puritan conception, the true idea of the Church is that it is continually in search of a higher theology, a more comprehensive and perfect coordination of the spiritual facts lying at its basis. Extended footnote. There is a passage in Coleridge's Notes on Jeremy Taylor, Volume 1, Notes on English Divines, page 229, which may be quoted in connection with the view here expressed. Oh, that this great and good man, he says, quote, who saw and has expressed so large a portion of the truth, if by the creed I might understand the true apostles, that is, the baptismal creed, free from the additions of the first five centuries, I might say, indeed, the whole truth, had but brought it back to the great original end and purpose of historical Christianity and of the Church visible, as its exponent, not as a hortus siccus of past revelations, but an ever-enlarging and closed area of the opportunity of individual conversion to and reception of the truth. Then, instead of using this one truth to inspire a despair of all truth, a reckless skepticism within, and a boundless compliance without, he would have directed the believer to seek for light where there was a certainty of finding it, so far as it was profitable to him, that is, so far as it actually was light for him. The visible church would be a walled academy, a pleasure garden in which the entrants, having presented their symbolum porte, or admission contract, walk at large, each seeking private audience of the invisible teacher, alone now, now in groups, meditating or conversing, gladly listening to some elder disciple, through whom, as ascertained by his intelligibility to me, I feel that the common master is speaking to me, or lovingly communing with a class fellow who, I have discovered, has received the same lesson from the inward teaching with myself, 
while the only public concerns in which all as a common weal exercised control and vigilance over each are order peace mutual courtesy and reverence kindness charity love and the fealty and devotion of all and each to the common master and benefactor Close quote. a pleasing ideal of a true church somewhat marred by the analogy of an academy rather than of a home for discipline as well as instruction and especially by the strange insinuation which coleridge repeats again and again that there was some sceptical reserve in taylor's advocacy of the apostles creed as an ample doctrinal basis for the church it does not appear to us that there is the slightest evidence of this suspicion the scruples which coleridge had as to the existing form of the creed were unknown to taylor all the drift of his argument on the liberty of prophesying is quite as effective or more effective taking the creed in its limited and original rather than in its later traditionary sense taylor was quite as honest in dealing with it in the larger as coleridge in the briefer form the idea of the church on its educational side however is well and happily conceived by coleridge it is an idea transcending alike sacerdotalism and dogmatism both of which imply a church already in full possession of truth in its highest forms rather than in any degree in search of it the members of which have to receive and own well-known lessons patent to all rather than to inquire or look for higher light the one is the more maternal view of the church imposing her authority the other is the rational view which recognizes her as a mother but also as an organ of spiritual intelligence rejecting no form of truth but appropriating and purifying all the spirit of truth has been working in the church from the first producing many precious fruits of christian wisdom and knowledge which every reverent mind will receive with grateful respect but this spirit is as living now as ever and a sacerdotalism which fixes the divine in some definite ritual however venerable or a dogmatism which fixes it in a creed or symbol however valuable is equally fatal to those progressive manifestations or higher harmonies of divine knowledge whereby the future may yet throw light upon the past and more fully justify the ways of god to men it must at the same time be admitted that dogmatism and even sacerdotalism have their place and function in the christian church both are real growths in the course of its historical development they exist only because there is a side of christian feeling and intelligence to which they answer evangelical zeal and the intensity of christian enthusiasm which inspire and sustain missionary enterprise in all churches naturally tend to dogmatism while the deep sense of human weakness which comes from the presence of the divine in sinful hearts perhaps as naturally tends to some form of sacramentarianism or reliance on priestly rites unless scope is given for both these tendencies within a national church division or sectarianism must necessarily ensue but why should not a church embrace within regulated or legal expansion all these tendencies because they are intolerable to one another or beyond the control of law the evangelical dogmatist will not suffer the sacerdotalist and both detest and desire to expel the rationalist religion in short is not only beyond political compulsion which all now admit but incapable of legislative guidance or control the favorite view of our modern politicians on such a view certainly the theory of a national church cannot be maintained but neither can the idea of the church itself be maintained it must break to pieces by the mere pressure of its diverse activities and the very variety of those divine charismata out of which it originally sprang and which in the course of its history as at the beginning constitute the presence of the divine spirit in it involve its disintegration and dissolution if the religious element in short be in its nature irrepressible 
and religious men on different sides will have all their own way or nothing, then the church in any Catholic or national sense will become impracticable. But so also will religion cease to be a factor in modern civilization, and Christianity in all lands dwindle into a mere congeries of religious parties, the dismal spectacle, as H. Moore says, of an infinity of sects and schisms. Public life will be separated from religion altogether, and the game of politics become a wild chase of ambition, without even the pretense of respect for moral or religious sanction, while Christian sects look calmly on from their sanctified enclosures. Can we not already point to instances of such a result? End of footnote. In this view, the Church is not a separate spiritual society, either in the form of prelacy or of presbytery, Calvinian, Arminian, or Socinian and its tenets. Such divisions are already sectarian in their very conception. It is the nation itself in the aggregation of its spiritual activities, its collective Christian life and wisdom working with freedom, yet subject to the common order and law. The true rule of the Church is, therefore, neither with bishop nor with presbyter, with ecclesiastical council nor royal will, but with the supreme national voice. This is the only consistent deduction from the views of our divines. It was the practical creed of some of them, if not of all. Their theory of a comprehensive church, in short, embracing, as it did, every form of Christian activity, and giving free play to every variety of Christian opinion, had no final element of control except the collective national will. It may be called the constitutional theory in opposition to the sacerdotal and dogmatical, or the theory of the balance of spiritual forces in contrast to that of mere autocratic will on the one hand, or dogmatic compulsion on the other. Of the former, the papacy is the only pure and logical form. Of the latter, Protestant dissent, in its various manifestations, is the legitimate conclusion. The one exists to carry out the will of the divine, as expressed by a single absolute voice, into which all the intellectual activities of the church gather, and every lower form of the sacerdotal theory tends to culminate in this species of autocratic supremacy. The other exists to propagate its own notions of Christian truth as necessarily the truth, and by the pressure of its special dogmatisms to crush all further spirit of Christian inquiry, and, within its own pale, or as far as it can, all freedom of thought. Whatever may be thought of the latitudinarian or constitutional theory, it is at least the only theory of the Church which has been found consistent with Christian science and the cultivation of intellectual fairness no less than spiritual piety and charity. Not only so, but it is the only theory not discredited by the course of civilization. A national church which can embrace all the varied activities of Christian thought and life, which can appropriate instead of repelling the results of scientific discovery, and modify instead of banning even the froward energies of communistic thought, is a possibility in the future. The wildest powers of our modern scientific and social life may be brought within its control and purification. Before such powers, popery and separatism are alike helpless. Systems which have nothing to learn, which have long ago laid up and embalmed as splendid antiquarianism their theories of the divine, have nothing to teach. The most living and powerful thought of the age passes them by without notice. Medievalism broods as a specter on the face of modern civilization. Sectarianism faintly solicits its mind and heart. Neither really move and vitalize it, while it goes onward its unknown way. 2. If our rational theologians differed in their theory of the Church, both from the Prelatists and Puritans, they no less differed in their theory of religion. The one difference, indeed, implies the other. With both these parties, religion was more or less something distinct from humanity, 
a celestial truth in the keeping of bishops or of presbyters of the church or of a westminster assembly the cambridge divines did not of course deny that there was a distinct spiritual truth revealed in scripture on the contrary they were the great defenders of the reality of religion and the reaction of unbelief that followed the dogmatic excesses of the time they were christian apologists as well as christian rationalists and their true position can only be understood when viewed in both aspects on the one side they testified to the need of reason and faith of morality and religion on the other side they testified and none have ever done it more nobly that reason needs faith and morality religion this double attitude is of the highest significance religion they said is not a set of forms or magical round of rites neither is it a set of notions or elaborate round of doctrines it is a life a higher purer nobler expression of the ordinary human life a deiform seed within the soul growing up into spiritual blossom and fruit the single condition of this spiritual culture is the divine spirit in contact with the human guiding educating enriching strengthening it this was their idea of religion alike against the formal mysticism of the laudians and the formal opinionativeness of the puritans the essence of piety was not in the spiritual performances of the one nor the spiritual exercises of the other but in a pure good and beautiful life but then they added and no set of theologians have ever more emphatically added such a life can only exist in the divine and the divine is a reality the spiritual is as truly as and more truly than the material while religion is never to be dissociated from life and apart from it exists only in its simulacra rites or notions it is yet no mere culture of the common external life no mere moral coating it is the growth of the divine side of life and this side is as real as the natural side nay it is the deeper reality of the two in this sense religion is distinctive but in no other it is of importance to bring out this aspect of the christian rationalism of the seventeenth century not only because otherwise one of its main aspects would be overlooked but also because it has suffered misrepresentation on this very point it was the accusation of its contemporary puritan and high church critics and it is a common assertion of the same critics to this day that the cambridge divines may be considered christian moralists but not evangelists they preached an elevated christian philosophy but not the gospel of divine grace now what is the gospel and what is divine grace the gospel is the news of divine love the message that god is willing to save sinners and has sent his son into the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life this is the very pith of the evangel and the writings of the cambridge divines are full of it divine grace is the reality of divine help to save us when we cannot save ourselves moral aspirations the very highest unless they spring from a divine source and lay hold of divine strength will not bring a man forth from the depths of sin and set him upon a rock establishing his goings this is the very essence of the cambridge theology which not only finds the strength of morality in the divine but identifies the moral itself with the divine the very idea of good is already the presence of god in humanity good and evil justice and injustice are manifestations of the divine mind in us and have otherwise no existence they are the movements of the divine spirit otherwise they are not realities at all but mere illusions and conventions how can a theology like this be accused of undervaluing divine grace when it finds all its distinction in the exaltation of the divine but according to the very explanation it may be asked 
does the Cambridge theology not lose the divine in the moral? Yes, but by divinizing the moral, not humanizing the divine. What it never does is to separate the divine and human, and hold the former apart in sacred rites or sacred doctrine, Pharisees of the affection or the intellect. This, so far from exalting divine grace, seemed to this theology to sectarianize and degrade it. It seemed to incarnate the living spirit in a dead idol, to venerate the chalice and bread upon the altar instead of the divine presence, ever working in humanity and quickening it to a higher life, or to deify the doctrine about the Savior instead of the living Savior himself. The divine may, no doubt, be conceived apart from its human manifestations in the higher spiritual instincts of our race, but we can know nothing of it save in these manifestations. Spirit can only live in spirit, can only be known by spirit. We can only find God in ourselves. The roots of the divine and the human are inseparable, and if we try to tear them asunder, we plunge nonetheless into materialism because we may be high church ritualists or Puritan dogmatists of an extreme kind. The noble distinction of the Cambridge divines is that they at once rationalized religion and vindicated its distinctive reality. Faith and reason, the divine and the human, grace and works, were to them inextricably involved. The analysis which tries to separate them breaks and destroys them. The one is in the other. We cannot reach the higher save through the lower. The lower is only complete in the higher. But they were so far from ignoring the divine, or losing it in the human, that their most vital struggle was to maintain and make clear the divine as the paramount crown and glory of the human. They were, if ever men were, defenders of the faith. Their special labor as Christian philosophers was to prove that religion was a transcending reality, a substantive power binding the soul to God, revealing God to the soul, a power more real than all the bigotries which simulated it, or all the ceremonies which represented it. This was their mission against the materialism of their time. On the one side, they aimed to purify and elevate the popular religion. On the other, they aimed to discover and vindicate a substantive religious sphere, which, however obscured or perverted, was the highest and most indestructible of all spheres of knowledge. The contentions of religious parties had discredited religion altogether. The Cambridge divines found themselves not merely facing exhausted factions before whom they sought to present a higher ideal of religion, conciliatory instead of sectarian, but facing what appeared to them a new and formidable foe which struck at the very basis of spiritual life and left no room for the ideas of God and immortality at all. As they fought against a technical and barren theology, so they fought against an undivine and unspiritual philosophy. Hobbes appeared to them an enemy to all religion. It was no matter that he professed to reverence it, and to appropriate and manipulate religious ideas as factors in the organization of society. With all, he seemed to them to take from these ideas all true basis. A religion born of fear, a church constituted by mere police authority, outraged all their deepest instincts. They could find no foundation for worship nor for morality, save in the fact of a divine spirit in man witnessing to a divine spirit above him. And it became the passion and labor of their lives to vindicate this twofold form of the divine, God and immortality. It is unnecessary for us to say further how they performed this great task. We have dwelt sufficiently upon this aspect of their work and indicated our estimate of its substantial success. If God and immortality can be verified by human inquiry and reasoning at all, they can only be verified in the line of their thought. That is to say, 
by recognizing the true place of mind in nature as first and not second, senior and not junior. The soul and God, the divine in man and the divine without him, are essential correlatives. Man is spirit and not matter, thought and not thing, if there is a spiritual world at all. As Moore himself has said in the close of his Antidote Against Atheism, no spirit, no God. Footnote. Nullus spiritus, nullus deus. Sir William Hamilton quotes from the Latin version, Lectures on Metaphysics, Volume 1, page 32. Nullus in microcosmo spiritus, nullus in macrocosmo deus. But Moore's words are simply as we have given them in the original English and in his own Latin version. End of footnote. It is impossible to advance the basis of proof for the being of a god beyond this, or to rest it anywhere else. The divine reason is an intuition of the human reason, or, conversely, the human is an index of the divine, verifying its object by its own light, and revealing in the very depth of its rationality that the sphere of spirit transcends and encompasses that of sense. The divine is the reality. It is substance and not shadow, or, as all materialism must make it, a mere dream painted by the subtle associative magic of human hopes and fears and aspirations. The spiritual above is the utterance of the spiritual within, and the latter can only be found a reality in the experience of its own transcending nature, one and indivisible, a unity of consciousness which is not mine but me, which no mere material combinations, however they may modify and control it, can be conceived as originating, which, in short, is before and not after matter, and if it did not proceed, could never come out of or appear within matter. It is impossible so far to overrate the services of our theologians. The exponents and advocates of a comprehensive church, the purifiers of the popular theology, they were at the same time the great champions of the reality of religion when the excesses of its partisans drove their age to unbelief. They stood in the breach and fought for the good cause with the weapon of reason, when many of the cowardly fanatics who had disgraced it were swept away with the new tide or were silent in their ignorant and irrational isolation. Their two attitudes are closely akin. It was their deep feeling of the reality of religion as a living good in humanity which made them so earnest to save it alike from the excesses of Puritan dogmatism and the invasions of hobby and speculation. The encumbrance of the one and the hollowness of the other they felt as alike fatal to it. It was the same higher rationality of thought which animated them in both cases, in the one seeking to keep religion true to fact, and in the other to prove that it was a fact and no mere artifice or convention. End of chapter 7, part 1